Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 2nd, 2018. This is episode 2242. That's right, 2242 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Monday. That means it's time for a listener, listener feedback show. Now, this uh, this week's going to be a little bit of a, a week with a hole in it, because hump day is kind of a whole day for the work week. What do I mean? It's the 4th of July. Uh, most people are taking off. I'm taking off. Much of the family's coming over. I'm going to be making burgers and bratwurst and uh, chicken wings. Uh, we're going to do Jamaican jerk chicken wings and uh, some other stuff and hang out and go to the pool and do everything except fireworks. I, and the reason I'm not going to do fireworks this year, I'm not going to be that guy. Who is that guy? That guy is the guy that burns down your house. It hasn't rained here in months at any significant level. Uh, all the fields are brown, and uh, the sky is gray. Now, the sky's blue, but the, 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 the fields are brown. And uh, I, I think it would take one good ember in the wrong place to start a serious fire. Um, I have less than hopeful aspirations that my neighbors will uh, will follow my lead on this. I think my direct neighbors will because they all seem to make sense. But, you know, just a few houses over and further back, I think we may have a lot of fireworks going off this year. And I just don't think it's a good idea. Um, I We only have fireworks for sale uh, the week before 4th of July, right up to 4th of July. And... I know they've been doing a pretty good business base down there, and I hope people are doing what we did, which is like, hey, we don't get them one time a year. Let's get them, but let's save them for another time. Uh, we don't need the state to tell us not to do something. It just just down the road, once you get to city limits, there's a, a ban on uh, setting fireworks off. Not because it's dry, because they don't think you're capable of doing that without like setting the place on fire or killing yourself, and you're not responsible enough to have a firework. Though you can drive around in a you know a 6,000-pound death machine called a car. So... I really don't want any further legislation on this. I just thought it would be a good day for a reminder of stuff like that. Uh, another thing I want to remind you of, I talked about it on Friday, but I'll reiterate it today. We are now past the midway point of the year. By being on July 2nd, it's now closer to Christmas 2018 than it is to New Year's Day 2018. We're more than halfway through the year. How has 2018 been for you? Are you working on your freedom, your liberty, developing your wealth, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, your independence? Or are you letting life put you backwards? I won't say much more about that right now because somebody sent me a link to a really great book in audio form on YouTube. very old book called The Richest Man in Babylon. And I'm going to do a segment on that today, and we'll talk more about this when I get there. Just kind of put that in your mind. Time's ticking like it always is. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. And if we're not working for ourselves, then time's working against us. That's just a constant reality. What else are we going to talk about today? Well, uh, have you heard all of these people on the left? And remember, if you're new to the show, I'm not a, a right-winger or a left-winger. I am a true libertarian. Uh, I am an anarchist at heart. I believe that taking stuff from people and hurting people is wrong no matter what title you get. It's always wrong to forcibly take things from others, and it's always wrong to hurt other people. Uh, but in the end, I'm also a pragmatist, and I look at the political landscape the way it is. And the left has been losing their mind lately. 
I mean, they've been making the right look as sane as a person can be. And one of the things that I've really noticed that just disgusts me is things like calling the detention centers for illegal aliens caught crossing our border concentration camps, referring to ICE as Nazis, and as they've been doing ever since the guy declared that he was running for president and actually became a valid candidate, calling Donald Trump, and I quote, literally Hitler, end quote. And when they started this concentration camp thing, it was a new level. And I said just about a week and a half ago to my wife, I wonder how Holocaust survivors feel about referring to a place where people play pool and watch TV as a concentration camp. Well, it turns out we don't have to wonder anymore. I got the words direct from the horse's mouth, so to speak, here. A Holocaust survivor talking about this. And I'll bring that to you for our lead story today. Uh, second story of the day, I am a jerk once again. Yes, Jack, you're a jerk. Another, actually, I got a couple Jack, you're a jerk emails this last week. Um, and I'm playing my favorite one. I could not be happier, once again, for being a jerk. If you're new to the show, it'll make sense when I read it. Question on using comfrey on scrapes and cuts, etc. Sources for cheap trees and the limitations of those sources and the trees that you get from them. Uh, another example of the unintended consequences of government actions, this one regarding property taxes and um, uh, specifically square footage, and now a housing shortage in my area here in Dallas-Fort Worth and why it's almost unfixable now. And if you fix it, it's going to hurt really bad. And then uh, the market will probably eventually fix it anyway, and it'll hurt even worse. We'll, we'll talk about the trap they've created for people. I have a question on feed-grade grain, stuff that you would buy to feed animals with. Is it safe for human consumption? Again, I have my segment on The Richest Man in Babylon, uh, a book that I read when I was a very young man. And I only wish I would have really put the philosophy in place when I was 19 years old, which is when a, uh, a sergeant that I worked with, not for, but with in the military, handed me this book along with several others the first time I ever read it. Uh, storage of grain, once a large container is opened, I have a question on that. And dealing with cogged, spray, clog, cogged, clogged sprayers, that is, where you're full yard feeding, specifically in this case, Garrett juice, but how this can happen anyway and what the remedy for it is. We'll have all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is the source that I use when I need to add ammo to my ammo stash. About the only time that I get ammo anymore that I don't get it from Bulk Ammo is some of the specialty stuff they don't carry. They're mostly the common ca caliber stuff. Uh, or if I reload something. Or I need it now because I forgot all about something and I'm going to the range with a buddy and I got this gun I want to shoot and I don't have enough ammo for it and I buy it on the way. Otherwise, I'm going to BulkAmmo.com, I'm getting my discount as a member of the MSB, I'm getting great ammo, and I'm getting it so fast I almost could order it You know, the day that I'm going to the range. If I knew I was going to the range Saturday, and I ordered it today, I wouldn't even sweat one bead of sweat at whether my ammo would be here on time, because it'll probably be here by about Wednesday, Thursday at the latest has been my experience with bulk ammo. I've heard from many of you that say the same thing. Great price, great selection, great availability, lightning-fast shipping, discount for the MSB. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com because, remember, your gun, absent ammo, is nothing but an expensive club. Next up today, the real precious metal. Can we just talk about the other precious metal, copper, jacket, and lead? The real precious metals are silver and gold. Yeah, platinum, palladium, etc. Silver and gold. These are the money, uh, the, the money metals. The, the metals that have been historically a store of value 
since before the time of the book we'll talk about today, the richest man in Babylon, going back from them, and will be worth something for as long as men value a store of value. I really believe that. Gold and silver in recorded history have never been worth nothing, ever, ever. And that's why they are what I use as my wealth assurance program, like insurance, except it's assurance. And what I mean by that is I keep 5% to 10% of my net worth in gold. It's actually a fairly small amount, but it is that hedge against runaway inflation or complete collapse of paper assets or who knows what else. But there's something, see, I actually think if you're a smart investor, you can avoid the pain of a lot of those things by, yes, timing the market, et cetera, having a good investment advisor, things like that. Um, and if your investment advisor just says, just hold it and don't worry about it, no, no, no you got to find a new investment advisor. But you can see major corrections coming. You can get out of the way. I helped you guys do that in 2008, 2009 when I first started the show. Those are the major moves I'm talking about. So I think we can mitigate a lot of those fears. This is my big thing about silver and gold. I will be able to leave behind wealth to my heirs that's between nobody except me and them, and as we say here in Texas, the fence post. It is the most anonymous, easily transformable, transferable form of wealth that there is. Even cryptocurrency cannot be as easily transferred and as anonymous as, hey, how you doing? Here's a silver coin. Done. Nobody know nothing. And it is not just wealth and value in, like, if I gave you a dollar, well, the dollar continues to be devalued, but also, like, can you spend that dollar anywhere in the world? U.S. used to be the case, but maybe not so much anywhere. That silver coin is valuable throughout the world, and it is a great way to save money for kids, and it's a great way to invest in kids. And I actually give silver and gold to my grandchildren, my nieces, my nephews as presents. My grandson actually has a little treasure chest that he gets every birthday and things like this, Christmas and other things. He'll get his regular crap presents that kids like, because kids like that stuff. But he'll get a coin or two or three and a story that goes with them, and they go in the chest. Now, I know when he grows up, he's not just going to blow all that. He's not going to run down a pawn shop and have a party. I know I'm teaching him to store wealth, to build wealth, and to have a store of value. Silver and gold do that better than anything else in the world. And the best place to get them is where you're going to pay the less amount for the same thing. Jam bullion, you pay less for your silver, you pay less for your gold, you pay $0 for shipping, and you can even get a discount with the MSB. No one does discounts on silver and gold, except we do it right here with our Member Support Brigade. And before we get to uh, the, the segments for today, I want to remind you guys about the MSB. If you join the MSB, you can support the Survival Podcast for about $50 uh, a year or about 18.3 cents per episode. You get discounts on lots of great stuff, like the sponsors we talked about today. And uh, you, you get to help support us. I mean, it's, it's that simple. You get your money back and you support us. Real simple, so do consider joining the MSB. And let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show. So as I was saying at the beginning of, of today's episode, and this is one of those things where I think maybe people would think I would think a little bit differently than I do. I am an anarchist. That is first and foremost what I am. And I am not an anarchist because I believe in magic or I believe in utopia or I believe in uh, the magical world of Ancapistan or, or anything else like that. I am an anarchist due to my ethics. And I think most people, if you break it down to that level, if they'll be honest with themselves, do you believe that taking stuff from people against their will that they've rightfully acquired is wrong? Uh, they would say yes, and do you believe that hurting people is wrong? They would say yes. 
under any circumstances, against their will. Is it wrong to do that if they're not hurting anybody else? Yes. Okay, then you're an anarchist. You just can't quite figure out how we're going to get there from here. And I don't pretend to have all those answers. So I think when it comes to, like, if you, you said, is Jack proud to be an American? I think a lot of people would say, well, Jack probably used to be proud to be an American, but since he's graduated to anarchy and separated himself from statism and realized being expelled from a birth canal is not an achievement, etc., he would say no. No, I am, I, and I would say maybe, maybe proud isn't the right word. I am grateful to be an American. I think that is a much better term for what I feel. I am so grateful to live in this country that despite its problems offers me more, more opportunity and more freedom and more liberty than any other place in the world. Period. Exclamation point. Another period and three more exclamation points. That's how I feel. Now, People often say, well, if you feel that way, why do you complain? Because that doesn't mean we're as good as we can be. That doesn't mean we're as good as we're good enough. And that doesn't mean we haven't fallen from where we were better. And I have a lot to say about both sides of the aisle being wrong. And God, they are. But I'm so grateful to live here. And I know secondhand, not firsthand, secondhand, from my grandparents and from other members of my family, what true, brutal, tyranny is what true murderous regimes are like we have family members in my in, in my family that died in the Ukraine under the starvation program known as Holodoma I have grandfathers that fought in the second world war I have great uncles that fought in the second world war one of my great uncles was part of the liberation of an actual concentration camp and told me about it another of my great uncles He, the one thing he could not forget that was, of all the horrific things he saw, was being in Italy during World War II and seeing people beg for soap. And he said there was this one woman he remembers begging for soap and that, and that his unit had so little soap and they had to keep clean that they, no one was really willing to give any away. And he remembered one man that walked up to this one lady and cut a piece off of his soap and gave her a piece of soap and she was grateful. And another woman who turned to her and looked at her as though she was lucky to have it. And he, I remember he wrote me a letter when I was in the military, when I was going through training, and he told me about this again in the letter, and he said something to me that he had never said before, and I still cannot forget it to this day. I wonder when that woman finally got some soap. So when I hear crap like Donald Trump is Hitler... No matter what I think about Donald this is asinine. When I hear that ICE and anybody who's politically on the right is a Nazi, not a fascist, a Nazi, and when I hear that these internment camps, and they are internment camps, that we are, we are catching people coming into our country illegally. Jack, if you're an anarchist, you're for open borders. I'm also for we live by the law that we have, Until such time as we change it. And that doesn't mean that we obey every law. Okay? You guys know me. I'm for bending and even breaking certain things that are unjust and wrong. But in the end, our government will throw us in jail for not paying our taxes. But they'll take our taxes and give it to people that come here illegally. I happen to have a problem with that. And I am for securing our borders. If we're going to live as a state, 
If we're going to have a state, then the state is actually more dangerous if it doesn't have borders. And that's just reality, guys. That's pragmatism. And even if I was opposed to this, to call a place where people who do enter this country knowingly, illegally, they know what they're doing, they are held until such time they can be sent back to where they live, a concentration camp is absolutely insane on its face. So I said to my wife about a week, week and a half ago, I wonder how a person who lived through something like Auschwitz, who managed to to make it, feels when they hear themselves basically insulted to a level that is hard to even understand by making those two an equivalency. Well, I don't have to wonder anymore. This man was a child, obviously, when this all went on. Here's his story in his own words. And at one point you'll hear my voice. I'm not part of this project. It was a video. And during the video, there was a slide. And in that slide, it gave you some information. And you had to read it. So I paused, read that information, and blended it in so you could hear it. So I am not part of this production. I've just given you the one slide so you know what it says because it was kind of important. I'll let this man speak for himself. And I believe for all of the people that were, at least that were at his side, held in these facilities. Because I think he has that right. And then I'll come back and give you a little more before we move on. My name is David Tuck. I was born in Poland. In our town, we only had about 18 Jewish families. First, the Nazis gave us the way yellow armbands on the left arm. Then they gave us the Star of David, one in the front, one in the back. If you walked in the street on the same sidewalk, the assessment walked. If you didn't step down, they would kill you. If I had any piece of bread at night with me, somebody knew about it, they would steal it from me. Everybody was for himself. Survival. There were time at night when I used to go to sleep. I said, please God, let me see the light the next day. Many times. In 1939, David and his family were deported to the Jewish ghetto. He spent the next five years in concentration camps. Posen, Auschwitz, Methusen, and Gusen too. They gave me a tattoo, a number. I still have it on my arm. If you wanted to, I showed it to you. I'm skinny bone already. The Americans were bombing all the roads in the railroad. No food was coming to the camp. I never forget. On May the 5th, there were more dead people in the camp in the barracks than living ones. When I saw the guns, I said, my God, now they're going to kill us. And he said to us, no time, the Americans are going to come down the mountain and you're going to be free. I didn't believe it myself. I made it. I made a commitment. I never forget, never forgive. But it did to me. But I don't live with hate. To someone who thinks that America runs concentration camps on the border, can you give them a message as someone who experienced a concentration camp? Grow up. Do you know how to spell? you know how to read? How to listen? Do it. You can't compare any time I hear it, it's, it's sickening. What about the term people call President Donald Trump, people call other political opponents Nazis? What do you think about that? Sickening. It's just plain sickening. I thought we smarted it. 
we, we support, everybody looks up to, everybody wants to come to America. I remember when I was a little boy, the first thing what I said to the American, I want to go to America. I want to get out. I want to live here. Sure, it's, nothing is perfect in life. I came here to go to work, I had the family. I'm not complaining, nothing. But, I'm free. The freedom, if you don't take advantage for freedom, don't, don't think about something else that's going to be better. If you want to come to America, I did it, I waited, I came here. It's life. This politic is, it's, it's unbelievable. You don't like the president, in four years you can kick him out. Forget it. I, I listen to those politicians sometimes, I said, I wonder. They think that we're not even stupid, that's all. Don't worry, we're not going to hurt nobody. So people coming here, different kind of people, people come in, there's trouble, there's all the trouble in the world. No, even the families, we don't like each other. So live the best you can, it's still America, it's still the best country. If you don't believe it, then leave the country. You know, I completely agree. Um, I, I actually really have issue generally when the last phrase the man used is used, which is if you don't like it, leave it. It was That's a paraphrase of what he said, but that's basically what he said. In his instance and in what he's speaking to, I, I understand the sentiment. I don't even have a problem with him with him saying it. I do have a big problem when people are like, well, this is America. If you don't love it, leave it. Like that's, that's, that's not how America works. The entire point of America is for each person is supposed to have their ability to pursue their dream. And when something gets in the way of that pursuit of their dream, so long as their dream is not taking away the chance for others to do the same, then they should have a mechanism by way they could work, work to change that. That, that is the concept of a republic. As an anarchist, I'll admit, run properly with an educated citizenry. A constitutional republic that believes in the rights of the individual over the tyranny of the majority is the best form of a state we have ever come up with. So I understand his sentiment there. Putting that all aside, though, I'm back to, if you think Donald Trump is analog to Hitler, I, I really don't know what's wrong with your brain. Okay? I mean, first of all, just the, the pure asininity of this is, is extreme. Okay, so we have Donald Trump, the first president with the freaking balls... To say, hey, you know what? <laughs> Guess what? Um, really, it's true that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And we as a nation who purports to be their ally uh, should recognize that. Given our, our, our Congress has many times said that we should, but no president ever did, I'll do it. That's what Hitler would do. Hitler would risk his own political career to recognize the sovereign capital of the Jewish nation. That's, that's what Hitler would do. Uh, it, it's, it's a, even before we get into this other stuff, like it's just stupid. If you're one of these people doing it, please stop it. If you want your side to be taken with any level of seriousness, stop being an idiot. I mean, really, you're being a moron when you say things like this. And that a ICE agent, and these ICE agents in general, most of the time that they're apprehending people at the border, They're not apprehending people like running through the desert trying to get away. They're actually not that good at catching people. They're really not. Because it's a big border and there's lots of places people can cross. Most of the people they take into custody end up at a point where they're in trouble and they can't go on and that's how they're found. I'm not saying all. Oh, I'm saying that happens a lot of times. And the first thing these guys are doing is bringing them water. 
Like, they, one of the biggest things they do when they find them is get them hydrated. Because that's what Nazis did, see? When Nazis found Jews trying to get into Germany... Wait, that's right. They didn't try to get into Germany. They tried to get out of Germany. Anyway, when the Nazis found people trying to get into Switzerland and they stopped them, they gave them water so they would be hydrated, right? I mean, see, this is so stupid. And then to say these... So I've seen the horrific photos of these detention facilities with, like, bunches of billiard tables and TV sets and tables where they can sit around. These people are not being treated like criminals. They are being treated like detainees in that you're going to stay here, you're not really going to like it, and you can't leave. But they're not being treated like criminals. The conditions seem a hell of a lot better than the average jail or prison. And, and their punishment is to be sent home. See, that's what the Nazis did. See, the Nazis went out and found the Jewish people that were trying to get into Germany from other countries, and they sent them home, and they left them alone after that and said, don't come back, and if you come back again, we'll do this to you again. That's what the Nazis... That's not what the Nazis did. This is, this is asinine. And the biggest reason not to do it and put your politics aside and quit speaking like a freaking moron if you're one of the people doing this is... It is incredibly, I'll use the left's language here, it is incredibly insensitive to the people that went through the concentration camps and died. It is incredibly insensitive to the people that went through the concentration camps and survived. It is incredibly insensitive to the, the families of those people. It is incredibly insensitive to the nations that were invaded by actual Nazis and had their citizenry subjected to this. It is incredibly insensitive not just to the Jewish people, but the gypsies and all the other groups of undesirables that were also sent to concentration camps, killed, thrown into ghettos, etc. It is, to use the left's language, cultural appropriation, you assholes. You assholes are culturally appropriating... <laughs> the culture of these oppressed peoples in their concentration camps by using that word. Now, I don't actually think it's cultural appropriation, but I'm trying to make a point at how hip, hip, how much hypocrisy there is on the left. It's insane. It is amazing to me that the left purports to care so much about a child that might have been separated from their family when we have children literally ripped out of the hands of their parents by CPS, which is far more Nazi-like, by the way. They're not Nazis. But in many ways, they're far more Nazi-like than ICE. What justification does an ICE agent need to detain you? Oh, you're in America. We know that because there's the sky and there's we're, you're in America. Okay, uh, where's your identification? Where you know? Can you prove that you're supposed to be here? Well, no. Okay, where are you from? Honduras. How'd you get here? I walked here. Okay, you're not allowed to do that. Come with us. If, if ICE comes up to me and says, Mr. Spirko, what, what do you do? First of all, they would, right? And not just because I'm white, right? If I was Hispanic. They don't just walk. ICE, all this shit, they act like ICE is running around going, where are your papers? No. But if you're in a situation, like if they found me walking around down by the border for some reason, and they're like, what are you doing out here? And I'm like, I'm, I'm looking for Indian artifacts or some shit. And they're like, really? Well, where's your, where are you from? I'm from Texas. You got a driver's license? Yeah, here. Be on your way, Mr. Spirko. Have a good day. I mean, and I'm not saying that even that should be. I'm just saying that's the way it, or way is versus should be here. Okay, what justification does a CPS agent need to take your child from you? I think this might be bad for the child. I will, I will, I'm going ready, fire, aim. And then you go through hell to get your kid back. And they don't give a shit. The left doesn't give a, a square root of, of F all 
about these kids like that. They don't care about the kids who sit every day and wonder if daddy or mommy's coming home from deployment in the military. Oh, Jack, that's the servant of the, the Nazis or whatever. Oh, shut up. They don't worry about those kids. I don't care what, what you think about war or our deployments. Or they don't worry about those kids. They don't worry about those kids at all. They won't, how about this? How about this as an anarchist? They don't worry about the children separated by, from their parents who are currently in jail and prison by the millions in our country where the parent has been convicted of a nonviolent crime with no victim. I mean, because that's what you'd say. Well, these people, all they're guilty of is wanting to come to America. I agree. I agree completely. That's what they're guilty of. It's how they came here that creates a problem for them. I'd like to create a system where that's not a problem for them. I really would. If we can get rid of the entire welfare state, I'm all for a relatively open border system. Get rid of the welfare state first, though. We're not going to do that? Okay, then we have borders. That's how that works. But we're not talking about people who chose to come here from somewhere else who are going to be sent home. We're talking about a person that maybe had a significant quantity of a plant and is doing five years away from their children now, being separated from them, when you can't find a single person that says, this person hurt me or stole from me. They're not worried about them. They're not, but they're so worried about these illegal immigrants that now, magically, everybody's turned into a refugee. You people on the left, you need to get a dictionary and start looking up the definitions of words because you people use words that you clearly do not know the meaning of. Refugee doesn't mean, I don't want to be here anymore, so I'm going there. That's not what that means. It means, I fear for my safety to the point where I have no recourse but to flee. And I have to flee to this place. It's the only place I'll be safe. That's not what's going on. You know what that's insulting to? Calling these people refugees? Go look at your TV set. Go look at what's going on in Syria today. Well, no matter what you think about that conflict, and go look where Assad's forces and rebel forces are blowing up a town, and there's 5,000 tents right up against the Israeli border. Not in Israel. Right up against the Israeli border because they feel if they're there, if anybody comes after them, that Israel might protect them. Calling a person who came to America because they want a job, because they couldn't find one that they liked in the country that they're in, a refugee, is incredibly insulting to those Syrian people. In the left's term, it would be cultural appropriation. Of course, they think cultural appropriation is when a white family in Portland opens up a taco shop. Yeah, that's a real thing. I'm not going to put a link. If you want to find it for yourself, you can. It might have been a burrito shop. It was some shop that sold some sort of Mexican food, and it was owned by white people, and they protested it until it shut down in the city of Portland. The left finds that to be uh, uh, cultural appropriation and unacceptable, but they will call a person a refugee who is actually simply an illegal immigrant. And you heard for yourself what people like this man, who went through horrors I cannot even imagine, think about such things. And I completely agree with them. And there's my rant for the day. We'll go on to better things now. Uh, how about me being a jerk? So yes, once again, Jack is a jerk, and he's happy about it. Uh, for those of you that are new to the show, it is because uh, I have often said in the beginning of the show over 10 years ago now that I will not get emails from people telling me I'm a jerk because they're out of debt or whatever. And uh, then over the years, as people actually did the things I taught and actually did get a jerk, they thought it was funny to send me a jerk, a jerk email. 
So you're a jerk because I paid off all my debt or whatever. Uh, and, and, and do it very much in, in good humor uh, and make the point that what we teach works. So this comes from Kelly, and it's one of the first such emails we've had of this regarding the book uh, that I wrote with Dustin DeFriest, which you can get for free if you have Kindle Unlimited, or it's like $2.99 on Kindle off of Amazon. So it's a very inexpensive ebook, uh, and it's called The 1% Effect, How to Sell Your House in Any Market at Asking or Above. Um, so... Here's, here's what Kelly has to say. Jack, you freaking, you're a freaking jerk. Because of you, I, one, read your book, 1% Effect, and made my house 10% better than the rest. <laughs> I said one, you did 10. Good for you, Kelly. I made my welcome to our home binder for potential new owners. I attended a few open houses to get the flyers from real estate agents uh, that they make to have a sample to go off of and make my own to leave for buyers to take home. Two, I used flat fee rent real estate brokerage service called buyself.com to get my listing on the multiple listing services. Three, because of that, I saved $4,000 using a flat fee listing service. Sold my condo in four days. Just had my closing and I made over $50,000 on the sale of my condo. Six, I'm now going to be debt free because of the money made from it with money left over. What am I supposed to do now that I don't have to pay my credit card bills, jerk? I have money to save? This is crazy. This can't be real. Seriously, thank you so much for all you do. I think differently now and have become the devil's advocate in my family. And that's a title I'm proud to hold. People should always look at every situation from both sides. Thank you for everything, Kelly in Connecticut. Um, so if you want the book, again, it's called The 1% Effect. And if you go, I have a link in the show notes, but if you go to Amazon and put in 1% Effect Spearco, you'll find it. Uh, I think it's $2.99. It's either $1.99 or $2.99 if you don't have Kindle Unlimited. Again, you can get it for free on Kindle Unlimited. Uh, Dustin basically assembled the book with my material is how we put that together. And there, there's some stuff in here I think is really important. And I'm only going to give one of them today, though, because this is, like I think, one of the, the biggest differentiators you can do to sell your house, the binders you met, mentioned. If you haven't heard this before, what you do is you get a, a big three-ring binder, and you do things like anything in your home that needs attention, like how the thermostat gets programmed or whatever. And any owner's manuals, by the way, should go in there too, like for your appliances and thereof. But if you have a garden with an automated irrigation system, like an instructions on how it all works can be there. But you do other things too. Here's the schools for the area. Here's, here's my favorite place to get a pizza. Here's, here's the best everything in the area. You can buy the book and get a full rundown of it. But you get the point, like, if you, if you need uh, home improvement stuff, here's the closest Lowe's, here's the closest Home Depot, here's the closest Ace Hardware. Like that. And, and everything you can come up with. Anything you love about the neighborhood, include. Anything you love about the house, include. Anything you did to the house that you're particularly proud of, you include in that book. And... A little piece of advice, it often makes sense to like get one of those chains like a bank use and chain this to something to keep somebody from leaving with it. Because people will want to leave with it. Basically, they can have the book when they buy the house, right? Um, when you do that, you're turning on emotion in potential buyers. And emotion is what causes the person to make the decision. They should not do this. I, the other side of this I teach when you're buying or selling real estate. You go totally Vulcan, right? Vulcan from Star Trek, if you're not familiar. Logic only. Emotion out the door. You have to be a ruthless, cold-hearted son of a bitch. I, I'm offering this much for the property. Well, this guy has three kids. 
I don't care about that. I care how much the property is I'm going to have to live with having a debt for 15 to 30 years on. I'm not worried about his kids. He should have thought of his kids when he bought the house. I'm worried about the market value of the houses and how quickly he can move in and what needs to be done to fix it and things like that. When I'm selling the house, well, if you could just give him a couple thousand more off. No, because I know what the house will sell for and I'm not coming down. I know how to sell a house. But people are going to use emotion, so you tie into it. And there's a couple things that happen when they see a book like that. First, they go, this person took care of their home. That may not be true, but in their head, it just be like, if they did this, they, they, cared, they took care of everything. You know, if something went wrong, they called somebody. And include things like that. If your air conditioner breaks, these are the people that installed it. Here's who you can call. Right? Here's who you call if you have a plumbing problem. Here's who you call if you need a tree cut down. Whatever, As much as you can put together. Well, shit, that means that when there was a problem, they called a guy. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did everything yourself. But you figured out who to call if you, like... If you're the guy that does it and your wife couldn't do it and you were away from home and she needed it, who would you have called? You put that in the book. So it switches that on. The other thing it does is it, it entrenches that property in their memory. Things about it that were good that they would have forgotten. It becomes the house they want to buy. On a given day, a, 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 a potential buyer might look at four or six or eight homes. And they all kind of meld together. Even the ones they liked better than the other one, they're not, was this here or was that? When you do that, it crystallizes everything about that house. That's right, they had that extra big bedroom in the master and the, there was a really great view and that, you know what, they had marble countertops or they had granite countertops, everything else. And it, the whole book ties in on this. Every buyer is a settler. Every buyer is a settler. If your, if your budget is $100,000, you're settling for what you buy. That's easy to understand. Well, people don't realize if you're spending a million dollars, you're settling. If you're spending $10 million, you're settling. If you are anything except insanely rich and building your home from the ground up, you're settling, and even then you're probably still settling on one or two things. Every buyer is a settler. They say, this is my range, this is how much money I have, and they find the best thing they can in that range. You look at everything else, you, make, you don't worry about the house, that's $50,000 more than your house. You don't care what that house, house looks like. You're looking for houses that are selling for $10,000 less to $10,000 more than your house, and you want to make your house look, show, and be better and feel better than everything in that range in your zip code. You do that, your house sells like that. And it does it every time, all the time, period. Not just in good markets. Those of you that have listened a long time know, I sold houses in the middle of the recession in less than a week. Why? 1% effect. So check the book out. And Kelly, I am happy to be uh, your jerk this week. Uh, thanks for that email. Again, I got quite a few um, jerk emails last week. Don't be afraid to send me your jerk email. I love it. Just make sure TSPC is in the subject line whenever you email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Next up, hi Jack. I hope you had a good time. This is from Dr. Warford. Dr. Warford says, I hope you had a good time at Sanibel. I spent many vacations there as a child. I'm late asking this because I figured you'd be swamped after this and with the anniversary coming up and all. I'll talk about the anniversary at the end of today's show, by the way, because we are going to release the tickets on Saturday. I don't want to forget in today's episode. I'll tell you about that. But yes, I have been very busy. He said, in your show with Dogger Bones and Nurse Amy last month, you mentioned cutting yourself putting comfrey on it. Well, since you educated, educated me on comfrey, I now have a lot of it as it really grows well in North Dakota. I'm curious if you literally wrapped a leaf on it or made a poultice or what. 
Um, so, John, here's here's how that works out. It depends on what's available to me. I make my own comfrey ointment, and I usually use comfrey and plantain when I do that. I find them to be very good healing uh, cousins, I would say, not twins. Uh, I also have a product that I often buy because, I, like most people, I have limited time. I recommend it highly. It's called Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone, and it has comfrey plantain and many other things in it, but it's primarily a comfrey-based salve. In the instance you asked about where I cut my finger with a hole saw on a drill, yes, that was a dumb thing to do, and it did hurt. Um, I did use the Dr. Christopher's. It worked as well as anything else I've ever used. That's why I recommend it as a prepared preparation. And then if, let's say, it's spring... And I'm outside and something, uh, abrasion, uh, ant bites, whatever happens, and there's comfrey leaf right there, I will pick it up, rub it up, and just rub it straight on. In fact, for ant bites, and there's people that have been here when I've been bitten, like one time we were pulling, actually it was comfrey cuttings, out of some tubs that I was propagating them in to give away for a workshop. And I got like, all of a sudden I look down and I have like 200 ants on my hands. I got ants everywhere, and I knock all the ants off. And I mean, I've been bitten a lot. I mean, it sucked. If it was my wife, we probably went to the ER because she gets allergic to that kind of uh, number of bites. I grabbed a leaf of comfrey, mashed it up, and started rubbing it on my hands, and my hands never broke out. And I mean, there are people going, what kind of sorcery is this or whatever? And you'll, you'll find with, like, ant bites, if you use it immediately like that, it works, and if you don't, it doesn't. And the whole leaf seems to work better than an ointment for that application. The way this all started for me was back when I was a kid. My grandfather had basically sliced like a like a, like almost like like a whittling a stick uh, 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 the side of one of his fingers and uh, it looked pretty nasty I had to be five-ish years old somewhere in that range he said well about time you learn something boy come with me so we went toddling down to the you know garden area and I, I'm looking at him going my grandfather how can he not be crying you know, you're a little kid and you see something like you got to be crying and he starts moving. He finds some plantain leaf and some comfrey leaves. And he bru he doesn't really mash them. He more like bruises them a little bit. And he wraps them around his finger where he has this cut. And he holds it with his fingers and he walks back up to the house. He says, go in there and tell your grandma I need a Band-Aid. A regular one. I don't know what that means, but I go, apparently that's a regular size. So Granny gives me a Band-Aid. I take it out. She's like, oh, what the hell do you do now? She gives me the Band-Aid. I take it out. He just wraps it around and holds it on there with a Band-Aid. And I watched him do this for about three or four days. And I watched his finger heal like magic, is what it seemed like to me. And I was like, my grandfather's a sorcerer. He can heal wounds. You know, it's, you're a little kid. That's how you think. And, and that, that forever stayed with me that herbs had the power to heal. So I'll use it as a poultice. I'll use a whole leaf held to something. I'll use an ointment. It all depends. I have found the whole leaf. Uh, wrapped around a wound like that and held with a bandage or a Band-Aid or something like that, on scrapes that are that you're able to do that with easily, it seems to actually work better than a salve. I've found the salves to work really good when you have like an abrasion that's widespread that you really, it's not practical to do that with. And I've found the ointments to really work best also for deeper tissue injuries like my, my knee when I tore my knee up or if you have bruising or you have pain or aches and ointment seems to because it uses something like an oil to become permeable to the skin and take things deeper into the skin seem to work better um, but it all works it, it, it all seems to work really well so I have a link to the Dr. Christopher stuff on the show notes today 
Uh, but it's one of those things that it's really safe for you to experiment with and find out what works best for you. You know, if you like recently, I scratched myself in the garden. I had two scratches that were equal. I just threw confrey on both of them. But you know, it, it would have been really easy for me to just put confrey on one and not the other and, and convince myself. And, and don't think I haven't done stuff like that in the past. Or if you had two similar scratches to put a whole leaf on one and ointment on the other, see what works best for you. And as far as not just functionality, but like uh, practicality. Like I said, there's times when you have a wound that holding a piece of leaf on there is just uncomfortable and it's easier just to put a salve on and leave it uncovered and open. And, and, and it might heal a little bit faster that way or it might be a little more convenient even though it takes a little bit longer. Uh, but comfrey works and, and it works in, in such a way that it, it's, it's impossible uh, to, uh, to say otherwise. Uh, I didn't have this plan today, but I see it in my inbox, and I, I wanted to just do a real quick segment on this because I don't know the source of it. I, when I looked it up, I found it like listed in Joe Rogan's podcast, but it was on some page of jumbled text and shit that didn't make any sense. Uh, but I often say, does it change the temperature of the water in your pool? When it comes to a lot of these issues that people get really upset about in politics and across the world and ever, well, so-and-so's doing this or so-and-so's that, does it really affect you? And if it doesn't, let go of it. Is in your, and even if it does, is it in your circle of influence? Can you do something about it? And when the answer is no, then let it go. You can even, like, go ahead and let it out. You go jack around like I do. And then say, okay, now what can I do about this? Nothing? Okay, I'm going to go take care of my own shit. Well, this saying that came in from Nick is... Tend to the part of the garden you can touch. Now, I guess if we design our garden properly, we should be able to touch all the parts of the garden. But I get it. I get it. And, and it, it's very much in the world of permaculture, start with zone one. Before you start designing your food forest in zone three, let's design our zone one to, to feed the family, provide medicine for the family, provide fiber for the family. Let's, let's work on the stuff that's right outside our front door before we worry about the stuff in the back 40. And the, the, so I really like that. If anybody actually knows the, the actual source of that, tend to the part of the garden you can touch. Because when I Googled it as an exact match, it came up in a couple podcasts, but it didn't come up as like some Greek philosopher or something like that. It's what it sounds like. So maybe the phrase was changed a little bit. Maybe that's a paraphrase. If you know the source of this, I'd love to hear it. Um, I, I'm putting it up there with a society grows great. When old man plant trees, under whose shade they know they shall never sit, which was a Greek proverb, and I would put tend to the part of the garden that you can touch, uh, right there with it as great words of wisdom. Next up, Vlad is emailing me. Vlad, not Vlad. Vlad is in Vladimir, I guess, uh, and he says, "Hello, Jack. Where do you get cheap trees? I remember hearing in one of your podcasts that you got trees for like a dollar a piece." I know about Bobwell's Nursery, but they are pretty expensive. Where else do you get trees? Okay, I want to stick up for Bob Wells first, who's been a great supporter of the show, does a discount for members of our MSB, and I have bunches of their trees on the property. Uh, we did a run with them as an official sponsor for a while. They're paying me in trees. I'm like, I don't need $2,000 with trees anymore. Uh, I don't have a place to plant them right now. So we ended that, but not because of any sort of uh, disagreement. It just was like, okay, that's kind of run itself out. And I actually let them stay as a sponsor for another year because I was so grateful to them. I gave them a year of free sponsorship. That tells you how much I think of them. Um, they're not expensive. It's what you're buying. 
So you might be going there and getting a red globe peach. Well, how did that peach get to be a red globe peach? Somebody planted rootstock and made uh, made, made uh, shoots off of it for uh, for rooting, or they planted a seed pit and they made a root, and then that was a native rootstock peach of some kind. It could be a dwarf, semi-dwarf, full-size, whatever. Then they took a red globe peach tree, and then they cut a little piece off, and they grafted it there. And then they grew it out for a year, maybe a year and a half, two years, to get it to a certain size, and then they sent it to you. Well, you can see with all that why that might cost a bit of money. And so most of the stuff that Bob Wells sells is like that. You know, they're They're trees that are of named varieties and things like that. And they have an incredible selection. Peaches, pears, plums, apples, etc. The places that you can get trees really cheap, and uh, they're certainly worth doing, and I've relied on them for a lot of things. The two websites I use most, one is called Cold Stream Farm, and the other one is called Lawyer Nursery. And I have a link to both of them in the show notes. And depending on what you want, they're very useful. I got, uh, for instance, uh, elderberry uh, for something like 86, or might have been 76 cents a, a plant uh, by buying like 100 of them. Uh, I bought persimmons for under two bucks a tree by buying 25. I bought thornless honey locust for under two bucks a tree by buying 25. The smaller they are, the less they cost. The bigger they are, the longer they have to take care of them, the more they cost. The key is the plants you'll find here, with some exceptions, are grown from seed. They are a native type tree. If they are a fruit tree, they're going to produce a variable fruit, not a named variety. They may be really good or not so much. Uh, they're going to be unimproved, that type of thing. Now, Lawyer specifically does sell some named varieties of plums and some other things, but they cost as much as any other nursery for those. It's, you know... Pine trees would be another example. A lot of different trees that both of these companies sell. Bushes, shrubs, and trees primarily. That specifically when you go over a certain number, and so here's my caution. You might see something where you need five trees. And uh, to buy five of them, they're seven bucks a piece. That's $35. But to buy 25 of them, they're like, a dollar fifteen, so they cost a little bit less. Or they might be like, in the case of the persimmons, I think they were like eighty nine cents for twenty five, and they were like five or six bucks a piece for quantities under five. And the big price point break was at twenty five. So I bought twenty five of them. That's a lot of trees. So unless you know who you can give them to, a place where you can plant them, it may not make sense to buy that many. But you can almost always find somebody that wants a free tree. Uh, you might even just put them all in some pots, grow them out until the end of summer in a shady area where they don't get too much sun, and then put them on like Craigslist or whatever and sell them for $10 a tree. But be careful to avoid a trap of thinking, I'll buy 500 of them because you probably can't sell that many. Uh, but that is a, a very valid thing you can do. And they, they often have things like crab apple and stuff. And, and Coldstream used to sell autumn olive for you know under a dollar a plant. And I can't find anybody that does that anymore. Probably too much pressure from the state because it's invasive. Oh, God. Um, if, if you happen to know, anybody out there that happens to know where I can get autumn olive in quantity for cheap like that, I'd love to know because I'd like to actually get a lot more of it planted here. Um, next question is, um, well, it's not really a question. It's a comment thread I wanted to expand on. Um, 
I, I talked last week about the plight that millennials have with entering the housing market and how it's, it's not easy to do today and how there's this point for many young people when they're renting that if they could get a mortgage, they would pay less for a mortgage than they are for rent. And they could move into a three-bedroom house for the price of renting a two-bedroom apartment and things like that. Sean then followed up. Actually, somebody else posted on the blog, and then Sean followed up his, what I have here in my uh, email, who talks about how his brother is paying exorbitant fees to rent, uh, waiting for the market to correct, and the other brother uh, is paying for a house, which seems high, but now it doesn't seem so high because the market's come up over the years, and he bought quite a while ago. And, and the trap that's there for millennials. And, and it, it precipitated me to respond with a comment as well. on, And he was talking about how cities haven't planned for this growth and development. They won't fix this problem, and it's only going to get worse. And I said, man, you don't even know the half of it. And, and I want to talk about what's going on here and, and the real core of it and how – I think I've mentioned it before, but I want to talk about how it's a trap. Because then you start to, you start to question any time government wants to do anything, should they do this? And generally the answer is no. But what are the consequences of doing this versus what are the consequences of doing nothing? And we almost never ask that question with sincerity. They'll point to a problem and say, we have to do something. Okay, well, before we say we have to do something, what happens if we do nothing? And what happens if we do the something that you actually want to do? Because they don't really mean they want to do something. They mean, here's our solution. We have to do something, so take our solution and swallow it. So the something that happened here was in 2008, 2009, as homes got foreclosed on, they, they did not collect the property taxes on them because people that aren't paying their mortgage are also not paying their property taxes. In many instances, people just simply walked away from their home. And you can threaten them all you want, but we all know the old saying, you cannot get blood from a stone. And it is a true statement, and you cannot get money from someone that doesn't have it. So property tax revenues fell throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, as they did across the country. Probably not as much here because our market was not as overinflated as many other parts of the country were, so we did fairly well through the recession, but we still had a lot of abandoned properties. But the other thing that happened is, is this pulled down the value of property, including we still had a lot of people moving to the area, and they were either buying these houses below their market value, so then when you buy a house, like that becomes the value of the house. So let's say somebody owned the house and it was uh, they, they paid 180 for it, and the, the city had been, you know, jacked it up over a couple of years and was taxing it though it was worth 200000 But Jack moves down here to Texas, sees that house, and goes, huh, you guys are screwed, and the bank forecloses on or whatever, but eventually I buy the house for $140,000. I don't care what the old property owner was paying. There's a reset button with the city and the county, and that's what I'm going to pay my property taxes on, what I paid for it. It is impossible for them to argue that's not the value of the property. I just bought it for that. Okay, and they'll use the same argument with you when the property appraised at 85, but you paid 120 for it. They'll say, "Well, clear is worth 120. That's what you paid for it." And they'll jack your taxes right there. That sword cuts two ways. So that's hurting tax revenues in this area, and housing starts dropped a lot. There was very few, like back in 2001, 2002 through 2006, seven. There were so many developments going on here. There were houses being built everywhere. There were actually people that had businesses. All they did was put up signs for the housing developments on Friday afternoon and take them down on Sunday evening. 
because the cities didn't want these signs all over the place all the time, so they passed laws and said, you can only put your signs up for the weekend, because that's when people shop for homes anyway. And eventually they ended up making like special little signs that were like controlled, and they looked pretty with bricks around them that taxpayers paid for, and even that sign thing went away. But there were lots of developments. And it was very easy to buy a house, even eight years ago, in one of those developments for somewhere between $90,000 and $110,000. Three-bedroom, two-bath, starter home with quotes around it. Very easy. And there were places doing it for like $89,900. And, and then they would be like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They'd have that house and then one step up and a couple different floor plans of that one step up house and then another step up. And, you know, the, the, the most expensive house in that development might be near 249.9, right at 250. So you had to be like starting at, in the 90s to the 250s. And a $250,000 house in Texas would blow you away what you got for that at the time, especially if you're from New Jersey or New York or California or most of the country, honestly. It just blow you away, brand new. Um, Well, when this whole thing hit the recession, those houses dropped in value. And then they were building less houses. So the government said, we need more tax money. I know. The people that are still building houses, most of them are building custom homes, one-off, small developments. Uh, we want those houses to be as valuable as possible. So because it was an emergency, and oh my God, think of the children and their books at school and all the other bullshit. The cities and the counties crammed through minimum square footage requirements, which didn't have a huge impact initially because we were in a recession and even just climbing our way back out of it because we did not really go to the depths of the recession the rest of the country did here in Texas. But it's, it's okay, you know, but the economy starts booming again. And it still sucks in a lot of the country today, even with a great economy. People have been moving to Texas, growth of the population. People want to buy a house. Well, they can't build a 1,300 or 1,400 square foot three bedroom. The houses that were selling for $90,000 were 13 to 1,500 square foot three twos. And they, because they were very good and very efficient at building them and putting them in like, like a machine, they could sell them for that and make money on them. Well, they still could. They might sell them for $120 today due to inflation, etc. But they could do that and make money on them. But they can't. Because now the minimum square footage, depending on where you're at around here, for a new build is between 1,800 and 2,400 square feet, with the average being 2,200 square feet as a minimum new build size. So when the developers started coming back and building developments again, their entry-level houses are now $200,000 plus. Because in most areas, they're building over 2,000 square feet. They're building five-bedroom homes. What this means is that if you're that millennial trying to find that first home, there's no more $130,000, $120,000 houses unless you buy something old, broken down, and ready to fall apart. Which may not be a bad idea if you can fix it up. But the houses that are in good shape, built in the last 20 years, that are 3 twos, they're selling for $160,000, $170,000. Now, that makes perfect sense to most people listening here how that all happened. Here's what doesn't make sense. You would think the solution is, crisis is over, remove the stupid restrictions. What if you're my son and you spend $170,000 on a three-bedroom house? What happens to your property values? The day that there's a big field just up from them, 
that they're going to start building a development, and they're going to put in hundreds of houses up there, right just north of him. What if that, that, that developer is able to put up a sign that even says something like, 3-2 starting at 139.9. And they'll be able to go in there and build those 1,400 square foot, three bedrooms, and sell them for $150,000. As a free market person, I think they should be able to build 800 square feet houses if people want to buy them. But because they put this policy in place for the last seven years over most of the area, there are hundreds of thousands of people who would immediately go underwater in their mortgage within one year of making that change. Because the developers will do it. They will do it because they know that if they build those houses for $140,000 to $145,000 right now, they can sell every one before the foundation is poured. And they can do that probably for the next five years. And they'll and once it starts, someone's going to go, well, if we do this and this, and we limit the options to these three things... We can do it for one thirty-four nine, and they'll do that. And the one forty-nine people won't be able to come all the way down, but they'll start offering some incentives, and they'll pull theirs to like one forty-four five. And all of that's just going to crater the value, and you're going to create a housing recession. But if you don't do it, these houses are overvalued. No one should pay one hundred seventy thousand dollars in Dallas Fort Worth for a small three-two. They shouldn't do it. I don't think my kid should have done it. But he did. Grown man, do what he wants. Hobo works out for him. But in the end, sooner or later, this shit's going to correct. So how far do you fall, how fast, and how much does it hurt? But what created the problem? Government created the problem. They created a shortage of affordable housing. They claim to want to make housing affordable, but this policy literally created a shortage of affordable housing. This is why my father-in-law's house, and we had to sell it for him, Sold for $100,000. It's a zero lot line, which means your property line goes right up to the house next to you. You have a little buffer on one side, the other side. Your backyard, like your fence on the one side, is the wall of the other house. It was a two-bedroom. You could call it a three-bedroom, but you would have been lying. It was maybe 1,150 square feet. One-car garage. Nice little house. Needed a lot of work, because as he got older, he stopped taking care of it. And he did some things that were probably worse than he did them than had he done nothing. Sold for $110,000 cash in a couple days, because they created a shortage in these small homes. And that was several years ago. This, whenever government says, we need to do something, please start asking yourself, do we really need to do something? What happens if we do nothing, and what are the consequences, seen and unforeseen? Think, because it wasn't hard, like, you'd say, well, how do you know what's unforeseen? Okay, I really believe the people that did this didn't think about this when they did it. They were reacting to immediate need. We need, we need tax revenues, we've got to do this. And I believe probably in most cases nobody spoke up. But if you took anybody with a brain about real estate and said, what is this going to do to the value of property, they'd say it's going to jack it up. And they probably got that far and said, well, shit, let's do that. Because when it recovers, we'll have much better property tax receipts. But then when we start growing again and we have people that want to come here, how trapped are we? And what happens the next recession? 
How bad is it going to hurt this time? Remember all that insulation that we had when the rest of the country was losing their minds and we were sitting down here in Texas going, <laughs> you idiots, I can't believe you spent that much money for your house. Now we're doing it too. What's that going to be like for us? It wasn't hard to figure out. You could literally have seen that it already happened somewhere else. That's the easiest way in the world to know something's going on. Next, I got a question from Dan. Uh, Dan says, is it okay to use animal quality wheat for making bread? I have a friend who's been grinding wheat to make flour for their bread. The price of wheat in Tasmania has risen so that it's more affordable to buy flour than make their own flour. That is unless they use animal-grade wheat. If they use this wheat, they will save more money, yet they are not sure if it's safe for humans. They have attempted to research it and found no information, and sure, uh, they are not concerned. Uh, they suspect it could relate to the amount of nutrients in the wheat, with animal wheat being lower in nutrients, yet that's only a guess. I told them I would ask my old friend Jack. It would be very much appreciated if you could explain the difference in wheat and whether there's any concerns consuming a lower-grade product. Thanks for your help in advance, Dan. And his, his website is littletassieprepper.com. L-I-T-T-L-E-T-A-S-S-I-E-P-R-E-P-P-E-R. Littletassieprepper.com. I guess it's in Tasmania. I didn't know they called Tasmania Tassie. Uh, anyway, Dan, the, the overall answer is there's probably no difference at all between animal wheat and human wheat, mostly. As far as nutrient, there's probably zero. There's they're pro it's probably grown in the same fields. Now, there may be some restrictions on what can be done from a standpoint of pest management with animal feed than human feed. That you might want to look more about, like where does your wheat come from, who's growing it, and then find out if there is anything there. In general, I doubt it. In general, I doubt that it's much different. The big difference is going to be on how the product is handled after harvest. Where it's stored, how it's stored, what it comes into contact with, etc. But in general, if you fed something to a cow and it killed it, or fed it to a chicken and it killed it, that wouldn't be good. So it's not like it's going to have poison in it or something, any more than our food supply has poison in it already. Uh, there's a book that was uh, really, really popular back in the 70s and early 80s when we were coming out of a recession. Uh, I think it was called Possum Living. And it was on how you can live for like next to no money. And it was written by a young girl at the time. She was in her teens. Um, and she went under a pen name back then. She still goes by it today, but you can find out who she really is if you want to. But the pen name she used was Dolly Freed, F-R-E-E-D. And she talked about how you, they lived on like literally a few hundred dollars a year. Uh, and they owned a home at that a little place that they had fixed up and managed to pay for. And her and her father lived this, this possum living lifestyle. And Dolly went from unknown to a best-selling author overnight with this because the country was hungry for it. They wanted to know, how can I cut my costs? Even if they weren't going to live to the extreme these people live, like if I adopt two or three of these things, I'll, so I'll go buy this book for ten bucks and learn how to save money, that type of thing. And one of the things they did was exactly what you're asking. They bought feed-quality wheat to make bread with. And she talked about how much money that saved them over buying bread in the store. And uh, so it's been done. Now, there's no doubt that we are worse to our agricultural crops today than back then, but I don't know that we're any worse to our feed crops. Uh, in general, 
and I've checked on this, animal feed grade uh, grain is considered safe for human consumption, but no one would ever use it in a commercial product because if anything happened, they would be sued up and down, left and right, with no way to defer the blame. So in general, I would say it's probably okay. Uh, now, you do have to... One thing you have to make sure you're not buying is seed-grade product. And the reason you don't want to buy a seed-grade versus a feed-grade product is that a, a seed-grade may contain pesticides and things that were put there on purpose because it was going to be planted. So never buy a seed-grade product for consumption under any circumstances, even though it might be okay. You don't know and you don't want to find out the hard way. Um, and that includes for your animals. Do not buy a seed-grade product for an animal that you're going to feed it to. That's, that's bad. I mean, I kind of look at it this way. Like, if I wouldn't feed it to my animals, if I wouldn't eat it, I wouldn't feed it to my animals. Now, with some exceptions, like for you guys, you know, I don't eat a lot of grain, so I'm not going to eat a lot of grain anyway. But what I mean by it is, like, if I would, if I were hungry, and I said, that is so unhealthy that I'll stay hungry rather than eat that, I, I wouldn't feed it to my animals. And if it was something that I wouldn't eat in the first place, or humans don't generally eat, if it came down to it, if the reason I wouldn't eat it eventually became because of its source, because it was contained, I wouldn't feed it to my animals. So in general, I think that you're probably pretty safe here. Um, there's also something called field grade in grains that they can check into. And field grade basically just means it wasn't really cleaned really well. It's got dirt and residues in it that you can winnow out yourself and what have you. And sometimes that's less expensive. Anybody has any direct knowledge of this? Because I, I would have felt very comfortable 30 years ago saying if you go down to the feed store and buy a sack of wheat that's designed to be fed to chickens and use it to make human food, you'll be perfectly safe. I would have felt very comfortable 30 years ago saying that. I don't feel completely comfortable saying it today. My, in, my instinct and my leaning is toward that, but I don't feel 100%. So I'd, I'd like to hear some more on that from people that know. I know we've got farmers out there that grow this stuff. Contact me, let me know what is the real difference in how it's handled, how it's processed, etc. Including if you say, hey, they just... They just put some of it over there and say it's feed grade. They put some of it over there and it goes to the Wonder Bread factory. And that may be really, in the end, what they do. I think the bigger thing is what are the requirements for how it is treated after it is harvested? So once it goes to the silo and it comes out of that silo or goes into a feed silo, like how it's stored, how it's treated, it may be uh, quite different. So, uh, But what is that difference? Is it what the government calls it? Or what the people do. I'd love to know more on that. Uh, next up, I wanted to give a shout out to John, different John than earlier John. Uh, John sent me an email. He said, regarding Monday's 625 show about debt and retirement, I've truly enjoyed the Depression Era book, The Richest Man in Babylon, found in audio form on YouTube. Uh, IIRC, it assigned 70% uh, of your income to your living expenses. 20% for debt repayment, and 10% for investment. It has done more to shift my views on investing in Main Street and those I know versus Wall Street and their shenanigans. Take more vacations. I enjoy the fire, John. Um, so, like I said, the, the first time I actually came into um, possession of this book, I was 19 years old. And... Um, a, a guy that, that I, I worked with in, in Honduras, I was deployed at the time, 
Yeah, and Honduras was not your typical deployment. We lived in tents. We were on a about a six-acre six camp. We were building roads in the middle of nowhere, Honduras. Uh, I've done shows on If you want to learn more about what that was like, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com uh, and look for, just search for the phrase Aguan, A-G-U-A-N. You'll find an episode about the Aguan River Valley and what that deployment was like. But basically, you get really bored. Uh, we worked long days, and we only had Sundays off, and that actually helps with your boredom. You don't realize the uh, the... The gift of work, and there's something we're going to get to here in just a second about that as well with the richest man in Babylon. But this guy came up to me, handed me three books. Uh, one was called Beyond Survival uh, by a, uh, a military person named uh, Gerald Coffey. Um, Captain Gerald R. Coffey was the guy's name. And it was about his experience being shot down and held as a prisoner of war in, uh, in North Vietnam. And he said, well, read this one. And anything that you'd bitch about right now, about what limits you have on your freedom, you're going to forget about. And in, in getting ready for today's segment, I, I went to Cop Captain Coffee's website, and he said something. I just want you to get it in your head and, and think about it when I get to talking about Richest Man in Babylon. He says, at some time or another, we all get shot down. Are all POWs prisoners of war be tough? So in other words, no matter what happens in your life, even if you never join the military, you never fly over Vietnam, you never get shot down and thrown in a cage, in life you'll get shot down, you will be a POW, and you'll need to be tough. And of course, when he says POW, he doesn't mean you really are going to be a POW. He means that you're going to go through some trial in your life. This book was very formative for me. He gave me another book, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about General Patton. And uh, how General Patton got our tank warfare units ready for World War II. And he said, I think you'll enjoy this book. It'll teach you a lot about leadership. And if you don't want to re-enlist, when you get within your re-enlistment window, give this thing away or hide it. Because if you read this during your re-enlistment window, you'll re-enlist in the military. So I took his advice, and I did not read that book again, actually. Uh, it was it made me want to do it enough that I, I gave it away soon after. But it was a great book. I can't remember what it was called, uh, but it was a very, very good book. It talked about how Patton was a pilot, for instance, and he would, every morning before he would greet his troops, he would fly his plane out in the desert where they were training and come to them from the side the enemy would be on instead of coming up from behind them. He was always out ahead of them. And other things like that. It was also very formative in my views of leadership. And he gave me another book. Now, this is a, you know, it's like kind of a thing for him in here. Military guy giving another military guy these two books about military guys. Called The Richest Man in Babylon. And he said, if you want to be wealthy, follow the advice in this book. And I, I've followed a lot of the advice in this book. And my only regret is I didn't start following it when I was 19 years old. I don't even know if I'd be working anymore by now. Really. And I really don't have to work, but if I want to continue to live the life that I live, I have to work. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing book. And what I want to talk about in this book, real quick, before I give you a little bit more of an overview of it, is the tie-in to Gerald Coffey, which I never even thought of until this morning when I went to Captain Coffey's website, which is CaptainCoffee.com. And I read that quote right on the front page. At some time or another, we all get shut down. All our POWs, prisoners of woe, be tough. Prisoners of woe. See, not war. POWs, prisoners of woe. Prisoners of sorrow. 
One of the themes in Richest Man in Babylon is that any man can become a slave. And in a lot of the stories in the book, and the book is told, and there's some of thee and thou and Dost and things like that in it with the language to, to sell the storyline of being placed in ancient Babylon. Um, and so people become slaves in the book, actually become slaves, like screw up bad enough that they end up a slave, an actual chain around your neck slave, and then how they came back from that and actually bought their own freedom, etc., But many times in the book, wise men who are counseling younger men or just simply the unwise say things like any man can become a slave. And they never come directly out and say it, but what they really are talking about is what I've been saying my whole career with you guys. If you are in debt, you are a slave to that debt. Any man can become a slave. You can be a slave to your job. You can be a slave to debt. You can be an actual slave. You know, in society today, we have created debt slavery where the slave feeds and clothes himself, at least in classic slavery. The master had to provide for the, the slave a, a place to, to, to live, food to eat, and clothes to wear. In, in modern day, men live with nothing to show for it. The reason I decided to bring this book up today, though, is somebody made a comment on Facebook And I know somebody said something stupid on Facebook. Gee, what day is it? You know, I understand. This really wasn't stupid. This was meant to be intelligent. It just didn't work out that way. And it didn't even matter the topic we were talking about. But this person, kind of a third party, came in and said, we were talking about socialism and redistribution of wealth and how dumb the idea that is. And he said, well, imagine if today we took all of the gold holdings from Fort Knox They ran them all through a mint and made coin of all the gold in the gold reserves of Fort Knox and then distributed to every man and every woman in the nation equally. And said, well, the dollar's still worth something, but nothing compared to this. Sounds pretty good if you're a socialist, I guess. They just take all the gold and give it to all the people. And my response was, if you did that, And I ignored the fact that, well, once the gold doesn't exist as U.S. gold reserves anymore, what it would do as far as a global depression. But just let's let that go. Pretend there's magic LED beans to replace it. But if you did that, if you distributed to every man and woman in our country an equal share of all the gold that the country owns, in two to five years, the distribution of wealth in this country would look almost exactly like it does today. If you took every, and I said further, if you took every poor person, In America, however we define poor, people that don't have any money, people that don't have a job, people that whatever. We took every person, we, we decided who's below the poverty line. And if there's a man and woman living in a household together and they're both below the poverty line, we give them both $100,000. We give them all $100,000. Most of those people would be worse off in two years than they are right now. And you know what? It's true. You cannot give a person money and create a person who remains wealthy. You can give a person money and make them wealthy. But if you don't correct the problem that makes them poor in the first place, then they're, they're not going to become or, or stay wealthy. What they'll be is temporarily rich. And their money will flee from them as though wild birds were freed from an empty cage. It will just be gone. What will seem like much will be zero. And most people that win the lottery end up dead broke in two years or less. 
ever, I, 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 was, I was talking to John Willis at SOE Tactical Gear recently, and he said he's done so well financially over the years that it's, it's really easy sometimes to just want to just spend freely. You know, and then he, like he said, and somewhere on my shoulder, there's a Jack Spearco in my ear, raining it back in. I said, good for you, John. And you know why? Every single broke-ass ex-NFL football player is a prior millionaire. Every one of them. Every one of them used to be a millionaire. And now they're broke. Trying to beg for a commercial or something, Right. Get a commentator's job for a couple hundred grand a year. Used to be a multimillionaire. And the ones that aren't either came from families that taught the principles of wealth or they were smart enough to know they were stupid and they got some sort of a money manager in their life and said, tell me how much I can have every year to piss away and protect the rest from me. And almost every other kind ended up broke. So you can't buy people into wealth. They can only earn their way into wealth. People inherit tons of money and they blow it. And they end up poor and penniless. And, and you can see it in other ways too. People that have jobs making $200,000, $300,000 a year, they retire and don't have anything put away. It happens all the time. And what I said to this gentleman was, if we were to teach the philosophy in this book, in our schools, it would do more good for our nation than by distributing an equivalent to all the gold in Fort Knox and leaving the actual gold there. If we somehow came up with enough gold to match it and distribute it to our people, we would literally destroy our country. It would look really good for a couple years. And it would descend into oblivion. And the rich would become richer and the poor would become poorer because it is the behavior that creates this, not fortune or luck. Now, I'm not saying some people aren't born into wealth. I'm not saying that some people aren't born into opportunities that others don't have. What I'm saying is everybody has opportunity. Everybody has potential. And if you take a person who makes let's say twice minimum wage, whatever minimum wage is, that follows the principles in this book, and you take a person that makes ten times minimum wage, who lives the way the average American does, and they start at 20 years of age, both in those places, one making double, one making ten times. The one making double, living by the principles in this book, modified slightly for modern times, because this was from written in 1929, and the other one living the way the average American does, pissing their money away, even if they their, their direct income ratios stay the same. As one goes up, the other goes up on equal ratios. And one stays that far ahead of the other one. The one making only twice minimum wage will be ahead, far ahead in 20 years. And they will probably have an income that far exceeds the person that started out five times ahead of them. Because opportunities prevent, present themselves this is what people don't understand. Like, well, let's, you're so lucky that this opportunity came up. No, the opportunity came up because of the activity. And one of the principles in this book is to love work. doesn't mean love a job. Love work. Love the fact that you can work. Work as hard as you can. Because when you work as hard as you can and you exceed those around you, opportunities present themselves. People say, Jack, how did you go 
from making $6 an hour packing boxes when you first moved to Texas to three years later making a six-figure income in sales. And not like one of these people that somehow made it selling cookware or some shit like that. High-end technology sales. No college degree. How did you do that? I packed my ass off. I met somebody. That, that somebody said, you work really hard. Do you want a better opportunity? I said, yes. They said, will you travel? I said, I will do whatever I have to do. I don't care what I have to do. So I went from making $6 an hour to making $14 an hour and having less money because I had to pay for my own travel out of that and buy my own tools as a contract installer for MCI. I did that for a year, long enough to get the experience so I could come home and make the same $14 an hour without having to travel anymore. And it was, it was actually more like four years. It was two years later from there. I was putting out contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars and making commission on them. And each time that I moved up, each time that I moved to another company, each time that I moved laterally, I had a track record, a place to look back on. And people could call my contacts. People could find out whether or not I was what I said I was. And they always got justification. The way I ended up working for Microtest and eventually Fluke is a headhunter was trying to place a person in my market. And everywhere they went, that he went trying to find somebody And, and I wasn't right for what he was trying to do at the time. But it, he would go to people and say, well, you know, of the people that you interact with from other companies, is there anybody that you can think of that springs to mind as being someone that's different or really valuable or something like that that, you, you know, that maybe would be right for this? And, and they'd say, I, I don't know if he's right for this, because it was like an engineering position. But this guy, Jack Spirico, he's, he's our sales rep that comes out here often. He's, he's amazing. So this guy went and found a job that matched me and then came to me because he heard my name everywhere because I worked my freaking balls off. And people that are bitching about the opportunity in front of them, most people call it work, if you'll follow the principles in this book and work your ass off, you may not succeed and move up where you are But almost like magic, opportunities to go elsewhere and do more will present themselves to you. Suck every amount of learning and knowledge you can from where you are. And when you can't get any more, when you're willing to stay late, when you're willing to work for free for an extra hour to learn something and you can't do it anymore, and you've taken all you can and you're not happy, go find something else. Go do more and take that same ethic with you and follow the investment advice that's here. And think. So this is a, again, it's an audio book, and the whole thing's almost five hours long. It's on YouTube, and I have a link in the show notes here today where you can go listen to it, um, and, uh, it, or, you know, buy a copy of it or whatever. But, you know, uh, you can get it for free, so it kind of makes a lot of sense to use where it is. Take that money and invest it in yourself. The biggest thing, and you've heard it a million times, save 10% minimum of your earnings. But I love the way it's put in this book. Probably the most powerful way that it's ever been put by anybody. A portion of what I earn is mine to keep. And as this lesson is taught often throughout this book to people, many times they say things like, is not all that I earn mine to keep? And of course the older scribes or whatever would always laugh, ha, fool. 
Don't you need food? Don't you need water? Don't you need clothes? Don't you need materials for your business? Whatever it is. Like, there's a certain amount of your money that will never be yours to keep. Because you have to pay for yourself to exist. Instead of saying, I'm going to save a tenth of what I earn, say a portion of what I earn is mine to keep. And then take that and make that portion that you have, your investment money, your slave. And as it creates profits, those are your, the, the children of your slaves and the grandchildren of your slaves and the great-grandchildren of your slaves. is how to think of things like compounding interest. Great book. Check it out. Make it part of your life and you'll feel better for it. Next question, real short one from John in Arkansas. It says, last year I bought my rice and beans, among other things, and I just recently opened a first bag of each to begin eating what I store. If you're going to eat rice and beans, John, good for you. That is exactly what you should do. Following on today's question, Monday the 26th, I just recently saw a tip to use clean, empty two-liter bottles to store the unused portion of a bulk bag. Can you advise if this is recommended practice or not? Thanks, John in Arkansas. John, I would probably myself, depending on how big these bags are, use quart jars, uh, ball-style jars. And you, I have a vacuum canner, and I would probably use that because I can, I can throw, you know, just like 12 jars in that thing at a time, and, and it's vacuum-sealed, and I can put that up in my storage. And so most of our dry storables, that's what we do. However, there's nothing wrong with your suggestion. Um, do not, do not put an O2 absorber in a two-liter soda bottle, because it will plumb collapse it, and it might actually collapse it enough since that plastic's only so hard to breach it, uh, but it's certainly food grade, it certainly work. Um, it would seem getting rice into a two-liter soda bottle may be easier than getting beans in there, uh, using some kind of a funnel or whatnot, but any kind of food grade container will work just fine. Um, I think probably the easiest thing to do would be to go out and get yourself a food grade five-gallon bucket, um, and and store it in there. And you might even consider one of those gamma lids that I kind of mocked, just because it's real easy to open and close it. So, you know, you get a bag, you dump it into that bucket, and then you get a, you know, a jug of some sort that's easy to access, uh, like typical dry goods come in, maybe something in the range of a quart to a half gallon. And you fill that up from the bucket, and you put that in your pantry. And every time you're going to cook beans or rice, you go in and grab your, you know, one or the other thereof. And uh, then when that container's empty, you go get more out of the bucket till the bucket's empty. Now, you said out of a bag. So if you're storing your beans and rice in bags, I'm going to suggest that you get those into either food-grade uh, five-gallon buckets or five-gallon buckets that are lined with a food-grade bag and close them up in that bag. Uh, and, and in that instance, I really would think about maybe putting an O2 absorber in there. That's probably not necessary. And remember, uh, a uh, a uh, hand warmer, you can get those dirt cheap at the end of the season. A uh, hand warmer is a giant O2 absorber. The issue with doing that, unless you get a special tool, and even then it can be difficult, there's so, there's so much vacuum created with an O2 absorber, that it's often hard to get the lid off. That's why people go to the gamma seals where you can just unscrew them. Uh, but I'm a big believer that five-gallon bucket lids are pretty cheap, uh, and you just drill a hole in a damn lid if it won't come off. Uh, in general, I don't think it's necessary. It depends on how much you're storing. If you're storing 20 buckets, then I would do it. If you're storing a couple, three buckets, just throw the stuff in there and put a lid on it, keep it somewhere dark and cool. 
I'll tell you that rice and beans will last a long time in the bag that they come in. You notice that like Costco and whatever doesn't worry about it. They just throw the bag on a pallet. You pick the bag up and buy it. They don't worry how long it says they're at all. They don't care. Uh, it has incredibly long shelf life. White rice and, and dry shell beans have incredibly long shelf lives, even just stored like that. The reason I'm going to suggest that you get them into buckets, though, is insect and rodent potential infiltration into your bags. It's just safer that way. I would even say it's probably pretty good if you went out and got yourself a couple like tough, uh, tough grade, uh, tough text type garbage cans that seal up and, and just throw the whole bags in there and put the lid on. That would probably be just as good. Maybe one for rice and one for beans or depending on how much you store, you could put bags of both in there. You didn't see how big your bags are or what have you. You know, you're doing 50 pound bags or something like that. You probably fit a couple of them in there and leave them in the bags. Just anything to put a hard, uh, something in between potential rodent and insect and your, your stored food. Because it's going to suck real bad one day when you go in there and find a bunch of weevils in it or something like that. That said, rice and beans tend to be less likely to have that problem than grains like wheat and rye, etc. But it does still happen. So it, it's something I would consider getting into some kind of better level of storage. But for, you know, like once you've opened a big package using two liter soda bottles, that's great. Uh, that'd be another thing. If you get a whole bunch of those for free, well, go ahead and put it all in there, seal it up, and throw the whole bottles in some garbage cans. And then keep that, you know, in a, don't put that out in the friggin' garage where it's going to be 100 degrees unless you have no other choice. But it's somewhere cool and dry and dark. Uh, next up, I think I have one more question today. And uh, it has to do with uh, Garrett Juice, but I think this might be something that other people would deal with with other things. So, um, let's see, who sent me this? Yeah, I sent it to myself, so I had to scroll down a bit. Jay sent me this while I was on vacation. It says, why is Garrett Juice cogging up my sprayer? I just started my Garrett Juice regiment this year, and it's going well. However, the Garrett Juice seems to get a thick film on top of it, clogs up my sprayer horribly. Am I mixing too much and it's sitting too long, or is my sprayer just junk? I have a very small garden, a few potted vegetables, and spray everything every other week. My two-gallon sprayer lasts six to eight weeks. Also, I'm not, I'm not using liquid kelp in it as well. And I was a bit confused as you mentioned you spray Garrett juice every two weeks and liquid kelp in the mornings and the evenings. Can you clarify? Uh, I spray everything in the mornings and the evenings. Everything in the mornings and the evenings. And you could have heard me talking about something that might have been like, I have a plant with a problem. If I have a plant with a problem, I might spray it every other day for a week to ten days until it starts to look better and then go back to a regular spraying. Okay, So maybe that... Is a, but in general, when I do a foliar feed, I do... Garrett juice, and if I can't get the plus with fish, I add a little bit of fish emulsion, and I add a little bit of liquid kelp. And if, I've, if I'm in a point where I want to do any of the magnesium, calcium, iron, zinc, I'll add those right into the same spray. And I do do what you're doing, but not for six to eight weeks. You can't keep it that long. Now, if you went out there every day and, like, in your daily routine, gave it a really good shake, it might help. Okay. But I use a half-gallon sprayer for exactly the reason you said. And so I'll leave that out with my plants, and, and then that'll generally make two weeks for me. So the second time I spray, it's already there and mixed up. Uh, that's one thing you can do uh, to, to, to make things better. The other thing would be figure out how much you're using and mix that much. 
uh, you can just you know figure out like okay if I'm doing this over eight weeks and I'm doing it every other week and I'm using two gallons then I'm using about a half gallon a week, uh, per spray and either only fill your your sprayer with a half gallon and adjust the amount of amendment you use down to that or get yourself a half gallon sprayer which honestly I I used to use a two gallon sprayer. And when I realized, like, I'll never, like, if I need more than a, a, a half gallon, uh, I can either fill it twice. If I, like, if I'm spraying everything and I need a gallon for all my garden stuff, fine. It's not a big deal to fill it twice. Um, or if I'm going to be spraying my trees in the spring or something, then I'm putting my five-gallon backpack sprayer on anyway. So I went to a one-gallon, simple little, like, hand-pump sprayer. You carry it around like a little spray bottle. And what's nice with that is I found that, I don't even leave it for that full two weeks anymore. What I'll do is I say I spray it every two weeks, but I'll go out and spray everything. And if I look and there's like a quarter of, of the you know volume left, so we are a quarter of a, of a half gallon, whatever the hell that is, uh, an eighth of a gallon or whatever's left, I'll just leave it out there in the greenhouse. And within the next day or two, I'll pick it up and I'll look for the stuff that looks like it most needs a little help, yellow a little bit here, whatever. And I'll spray and I'll just keep doing it every day or every other day until it's gone. Uh, and then I'll mix up some more. And a lot of times what will happen is I'll end up using a whole sprayer, a half gallon, and I'll mix up another half gallon, and I'll use half of that, so I'll have a quart. And over the next week or two, I'll just any, I'll just every time I'm out checking on stuff, yeah, that pepper looks a little yellow. Go grab the bottle, spray it, spritz it. It doesn't cost much. It's not much money in there. And if it gunks up on you and you have to dump it out, it's wasted anyway. So I try to mix as little as I need, and use all of it as quickly as possible. It can stay in the concentrated formula in the jug for a long time. Here's the next thing. When that sprayer goes empty, open it up, get a hose, spray it out really good, fill it halfway up, put your hand over it, shake it, and then turn it upside down and shake it out. You can shake it out somewhere where that extra nutrient could do some good, but give it an up and down shake so it cleans out really good. Spray the nozzle off, fill it halfway up with water, Put the lid back on it, pump it up, and spray clean water through it. Then open it up, set the bottle upside down, and the spray nozzle next to it somewhere to dry, and let it sit there like that. And one of those cheap little $8 sprayers will last you for 10 seasons if you do that with it. So that, that's, that's how to deal with that. Mix less and use it all up. If you mix that stuff up and you leave it in a spray bottle like that, it's going to begin to separate, it's going to form gunk, and one day you'll be out there thinking there's something wrong with your sprayer, and it won't spray, and when you take it apart, and you, you might not even really see anything, when you take the little straw thing that comes down there and tap on it, big old inky glunk will come out of there, and once you get it clean, your sprayer will work again. So you can see that I developed this system by screwing up too. And then once I realized I was wasting money, I just started mixing less and using less and found that it was easier to carry around a half-gallon sprayer than a two-gallon sprayer anyway. And when I did need to replace one, it cost less. Uh, I don't have a specific product recommendation. If you go to uh, Amazon and type in half-gallon sprayer, you'll find a bunch of them. They all seem to work. If I ever find a really good one, um, I'll recommend it. But all of them I found are pretty low-end, and but they still do the job. It's, it's compressed air and water and whatever's going on with it. So there you go, Jay. Hope that helps you. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I know we went a little bit long, but there was a lot to cover today. Uh, again, I, you know, I haven't talked to Stephen Harris. Technically, tomorrow um, we should be doing the next segment of the Bug Out Trailer Show. 
I don't know if he's prepared or not. I haven't heard from him much, so uh, I, I'm not sure where we're at with that right now. So um, I'll, I'll catch up with Steve, and either tomorrow we'll have a Just Jack show, and I'm probably going to do a show on cooking fish if, if Steve's not available, uh, and we'll push the, the Bug Out Trailer show another week. Or if Steve's ready, we'll be doing a Bug Out Trailer show tomorrow. No interview show this week. I'm taking Wednesday off. I assume most of you are. We'll be back on Thursday with the Listener Call Show. And we will be back on Friday with Expert Council Q&A. I need questions for the Expert Council. We'll say it again. I need questions for the Expert Council. Here I also want to talk about the party. I'm going to put out a post later today about this too, the anniversary party, August 11th. The way this is going to work, I, we, Darth and I had a heart-to-heart -heart on this. I've heard from so many people. I'm going to have to tell some people no. I don't want to say no to any more than I have to. So here's what we're going to do. The first 50 people to sign up get to come for free. And again, we're not paying for your alcohol. We're paying for food. Everybody's going to have food. We're going to provide food. It's costing us $25 bucks a head. I'm going to put a link in the MSB. It's going to go in there at 9 a.m. on Saturday, which will be July the 7th. And once that's there, you're just going to fill out a form. If you're in the first 50, you're in for free. If you're a couple, you got to fill out two forms, one for each of you. That's just the way it's going to be. Once we hit number 51, 51 to 100-ish, and somewhere I'll shut it down, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it, and when I get there, I'll shut it down. I am then going to sell 50 tickets to the second 50, 51 through 100, and that's where we're going to cut it off at 100. I feel if we let it get bigger than that, it'll be too big, and we won't get, I won't get enough time to spend some time with everybody. And I, just, I want to be able to do that. And I'm going to sell the tickets at my cost. So we're not going to make any money on it. It costs me $25 a head. I'm going to pay for the first $50, ask the second $50 to pay for themselves. I figure if you really want to come and you won't spend $25, bucks, you didn't want to come that bad. So I wanted to do something as a gift, so I wanted to pay for it. But I, I, you know, I can't spend that much money on this, plus all the other things that go with it. So that's what we're going to do. First $50 are free. It goes live. And the way I'm going to do it, make sure... You put your email address and your proper phone number in the form. Don't use fake emails. Don't use fake freaking phone numbers. We're not going to sell your damn information for something like this, okay? So that we, because I'm going to get in touch with 51 through 100 and say, do you want your ticket? Do you want your ticket? Do you want your ticket? And once that's done, if not everybody buys a ticket, whatever's left we'll put up for sale. We're going to limit to 100 people. And that's how we're going to do it, and that's the only way that I can do it fairly. Again, I'll put out a, a blog post later today with more details on that. I'll be mentioning it every day this week. I was going to do it last Saturday when we got back from vacation, but I was so buried, I didn't think it was fair for me to come back and only a few people remembered I said that one time on air. So all week long, we'll be letting you know about this. I'll put out multiple posts. I want no yelling, bitching, or crying when you miss the boat on Saturday. 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, Saturday, the form will go up. And you'll be able to tell by your number whether you were the first 50 or second 50. Uh, and, uh, and, and then, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll make offers. And I, I think that's fair. And that was based on what Darth and I came up with and the suggestions from a lot of you guys out there that said, hey, have you considered? Um, I, I don't feel comfortable going more than 100. I, I just think we want to keep some level of intimacy uh, on this. We have some cool things we're working on for you guys that will be coming. It's going to be interesting. And it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, more on that tomorrow. Next up, real quick, just our item of the day today for tspaz.com. 
If you go to tspaz.com whenever you shop online, you can help support the Survival Podcast uh, no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day um, is a shirt uh, that I've talked about when I did my fishing show, and it is made by a company called Vapor Apparel. And uh, basically I have two uh, different sets of links for you. Uh, one is called Sand, Salt, Surf, and Sun. And this is the branded version from Vapor Apparel. They have all kinds of different uh, uh, decals on them. I have some with like skull and crossbones like pirates and hammerhead sharks on the back and stuff like that. And then there's just the straight Vapor Apparel. It's the exact same shirts. Uh, they just have nothing on them. I guess you'd call them generic, but they're not generic in material. They just don't have any designs on them. They're plain white or gray or blue or what have you, and it's up to you what you'd prefer. You save about $10 to $12 by buying the non-branded ones, I guess you'd say. Um, and so it's up to you. You can take a look at them. I have links to the men's and the women's cuts, the short and the long sleeves, all that stuff. Um, here's what I love about them. Uh, they are UPF 50. Now, UPF's like SPF for fabrics. So that means that only one-fiftieth uh, of the sunlight, the solar radiation, gets to your skin if it's under this fabric. So you ain't going to burn. And it stops UVA and UVB radiation, where most sunscreens really excel only at stopping the UVB radiation, which burns you quicker, but UVA radiation is actually the radiation that I talked about recently with questions on sunscreen, goes deeper in and is more likely to be the cause of some skin cancers. Uh, so you get that. The other thing is they, they're a wicking shirt. I mean, sweat just wicks off you. When you sweat, it feels like you've got an air conditioner on your back. Uh, I did a lot of surf fishing with them, and when I would get hot, standing like up to my knees in the surf, I would just like lay back in the surf and wet my shirt down to stand up, and you could, it immediately felt like you, had a, you were standing in front of the refrigerator and being hit with cool air, even with it being you know, 95 degrees out, because that water wicks off of there so fast. It's evaporative cooling. Uh, they look good. They fit great. I like them. You probably will, too. Check it, take a look at the write-up. You can find it at teachbaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down uh, for today's item of the day. Um, again, love these shirts. Absolutely. I'm wearing one right now. Uh, they come in long and short sleeves. I prefer the long sleeves because if I want my long sleeve short sleeve, I put my sleeves up. Just shove them up. If I have a short, short sleeve shirt and my arms are getting burned, can't pull them down because they don't stretch that much, right? Um, though the short sleeve shirts do have a place and they have they look good and especially people that wear like you know kind of like a an overshirt and an undershirt situation they make a great undershirt for wicking off of you and again if you want the plain colored ones they save you some money there are a lot of different shirts out there like this these are the ones I like the best I think they're a good deal and the uh, the, the branded ones I think have some really awesome designs you, I, I've got a link to their main Amazon web store. All their different designs, men and women's and all that other stuff. Really, really nice stuff. Uh, not the typical thing that I recommend, but definitely a solid lifestyle choice as far as protecting yourself and living a better life by being cool and comfortable. Nothing so sucks worse than sweat. I promised in the review to say a little bit about the whole skin cancer being caused by suntan lotion and, and sunscreen. It's not the case. It doesn't cause it. What actually can cause skin cancer is a deficiency in vitamin D, which we need solar exposure to get, and overexposure to the sun. Both of them can cause cancer. Um, the issue is we put sunscreen on, and then we just stay out in the sun for hours and hours and hours. And human beings evolved, whether you believe that or not. One way or another, we evolved. Even if you believe in the creation story, we still evolved over time. And, and as primitive species that lived, you know, 
in nature and, and, and had to deal with not having air conditioning and, and heat and stuff like that. And if you were out in the sun and you were baking in the sun for long periods of time and you were, you know, an indigenous person, you went in the shade, right? So we have a limited amount of exposure we're supposed to get to the sun. And our comfort level tells us what that is. Sunscreen artificially changes that. And even though it does block that UVB radiation, that UVA radiation is still pounding into you and you're staying out there for longer. So there's a hint of truth, but most of it's bullshit. Dr. McCullough is the guy to check out if you want to know more. So there you go. That brings us to a song of the day that I'm going to be very brief on today. It's called Forever Young. And when I, I scan these lists, you know, and I, I didn't really look at that it was Johnny Cash week, and I thought, that's uh, Rod Stewart, right? Forever Young. Remember that song? Uh, actually, that song almost seems like it plagiarizes one. It's not, it's not a cover of this song, uh, but it's very close in wording. To this song. It almost seems like a, a riff off of it. Uh, the original was actually done by Bob Dylan. And Johnny did a cover it back in 1995. And this is a cool song. It's basically wishing the best for your kids. Wishing the best for someone of a younger generation. And may they stay forever young. Key is, none of us will stay forever young. We will all age. We can stay young in spirit, but in the end, time matters. Just like I started this episode out with. Just like my lesson today on the richest man in Babylon. Time matters. You know, the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. The next best time is today. The best time was 20 years ago. But if you didn't, find a tree and plant it now. Whether that tree is an actual tree or investing in your future or what have you. Because this concept of staying forever young, well, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thought. And in many ways, we can in our minds. But our bodies will age. Our ability to work will decline. We'll get sore. We'll get achy. We'll get arthritis. We'll get all that stuff. And those of you that are millennials that think you've been dealt a bad lot, you live in the greatest period of opportunity. Stop. Right there. End. All. Finish. Like if it's a telegram. Stop. The greatest period of opportunity ever full stop no matter what the tv tells you no matter what somebody that wants you to vote for them tells you you live in the greatest period of opportunity full stop go make something of it because you will not be forever young but it is a nice thought great song by the man in black johnny cash as we enter into johnny cash week we will have a johnny cash song every day this week with that it's been jack spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung And may you stay Forever young Forever young Forever young
May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous. Stand upright and be strong. And may you stay. Born. 